What is going on, guys? This is Brendan Burns, and welcome to The Brendan Burns Show. Join me as I interview, dissect, and share the stories of high performers who have created the life that they deserve on their terms. I sit down with speakers, professional athletes, and successful entrepreneurs from all over the world who have chosen to live a life of fulfillment and joy over status and money. In each episode, I share actionable strategies that you can implement in your life, plus inspiration along the way. So come join me for this episode of The Brendan Burns Show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The Brendan Burns Show. Joining me today is Scott Mautz, who is a high-octane speaker expert at igniting peak performance and deep employee engagement motivation, and inspiration. Scott's a Procter & Gamble veteran who has successfully run several of the company's largest multi-billion dollar businesses. He's an award-winning, best-selling author, faculty at Indiana University's Kelly School of Business, an Inc. columnist, and a frequent national publication and podcast guest. Scott, welcome, and thank you so much for coming on the show. That, that guy sounds cool. I, I want to meet him. <laughs> I know, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, brother. Good to be here, man. Yeah, yeah, likewise. So um, we were talking before the show a little bit about your background, and you mentioned growing up in Syracuse, not too far from Cornell, where I went to college. Um, tell us a little bit about your background and upbringing and how that connects into what you do today. Yeah, sounds cool. Yeah, I'm an upstate New York boy by trade and uh, went to SUNY Binghamton. actually went to school for creative writing, uh, believe it or not, amongst other things and business, and then uh, ended up... Uh, Long story short, did a number of different uh, business jobs, Citicorp, Citibank. Went to grad school at Indiana University, where I uh, teach now. So it's come full circle, circle of life, Lion King style. And um, while I was there, I got draw sucked in by this company called uh, Procter & Gamble. I thought I was there to be an entrepreneur, Brendan, and learn how to be an entrepreneur. And I got this great pitch on, oh, hey, why don't you come and be an entrepreneur by running a brand and have $30 billion in sales and, you know, behind your, you know, in the wind behind you. Sounded good. And I went for it and uh, built a long, uh, really uh, fun, great career at Procter & Gamble. And uh, then decided to um, kind of be a Brendan Burns type guy. And uh, I left uh, Procter & Gamble about four years ago to pursue my first love um, these days, which is uh, speaking from stage and to rekindle that old love of creative writing. So um, I, you can't get too creative when you write about business. Um, but I do a lot of that, uh, not only within the context of the books I write, but for Inc. And I do a ton of research as well behind all of the books, the keynoting that I do, and uh, for teaching at Indiana University. So kind of a, an ex-corporate person, if you want, that is now an entrepreneur, author, speaker, coach. Excellent. One of my questions that I'm so curious, especially with your background, is when you were at P&G, do you feel like you were a, a born leader or do you feel like you had to get out there and figure that out? Like basically are great leaders born, made, or it doesn't matter because if you weren't born with it, you can create that. Yeah, it's a really, it's a great question. I do think people tend to have characteristics inside that make them more leader-like or not. And uh, this, this isn't my opinion, Brendan. This is a, you know, a whole lot of research that would tell us for me, the, the leaders that get labeled natural born leaders and distinguish themselves all start with a real simple assumption that leadership isn't actually about them. 
It's about the rest of the people around them. And so what I find that people that generally have empathetic traits within them, that understand their job as a leader to, is to bring the best out in other people, they tend to be more natural leaders than others. Now, no one's born and printed a perfect natural leader. But if you have that understanding at the core that it's more than just you, that it starts with helping others around you become the best version of themselves, then context comes into play. Then you can learn a lot. I would say I wasn't the best version of myself, Brendan, as a leader until probably 20 years into my career at P&G, even though I pride myself in having natural born leader characteristics. So it's a mixture of both, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. So you mentioned empathy, which I think is a fascinating skill that can be very beneficial in the context of romantic relationships as well. <laughs> <laughs> Learning that firsthand. Now, it can save you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So tell me, um, how, can, how can one develop that skill for becoming more empathetic as a way to become a better leader in the context of, say, their own business? Yeah, to, to me, it boils down to if you understand your core role as a leader, if you truly understand, Brandon, that your job is to help others become the best version of themselves, if that is true, it's like a wishbone. If yes, then this. If no, then this. If the answer to that is yes, by default, you're naturally going to be more empathetic and show up with empathy. And if you think about it, uh, either the leaders that you've worked for, Brendan, or people that you admire that you know to have high empathy, when you think about some of the common traits, there's always an authenticity to them. They're always he or she are always good listeners. They're always concerned about the other human being, what that person's thinking and feeling, their high emotional intelligence. Those are human traits, not necessarily leadership traits. So if you're able to start with that, it's almost difficult to not be empathetic. And people ask me sometimes if, you know, hey, I want to learn to be how more empathetic. And I say, you just got to get back in touch with what it means to be human again. And everything flows from that. And it, what it means to be human is to start with someone other than yourself. Right? If, if that makes sense. I, I find that to be the most powerful approach. Yeah. So how do you take someone who's either in the context of a corporate environment or an entrepreneurial setting and they, especially I would say entrepreneurs, but even in corporate too, where it's so important to pr produce and succeed and do well, and maybe even preserve your job in a tough economy or a company going through layoffs. How do you get big enough to look outside of just you? Any skills or tools or tactics you recommend when you're speaking or writing to help people go make it not just about them? Well, what's, you know, what's really smart to do is nobody said you have to be a martyr though, Brendan. And where I usually get people started, the people that have the hardest time transitioning to being an empathetic leader are the ones that tend to be more, uh, and I mean this with love in my heart, but they're a little bit more self-centered. They're about numero uno first. I got to progress and get my career. My people will come along with that. And what they don't realize is you have your cake and eat it too, man. When you start from a place of helping others become the best version of themselves, guess what? Guess what the first byproduct of that is? Performance and results that'll be better than you would have gotten if you had chosen another path anyways. So people that I work with in a coaching capacity, I always have them just do a trial period. You know, for two months, I want you to try and focusing, uh, um, you know, in the following ways on helping, investing in others through their coaching, uh, empowering when you would normally take the reins and take control, trusting when you normally wouldn't trust. Try those behaviors for two months in being an empathetic leader and an other or others-oriented leader. 
and watch what happens to the culture and the performance. And what they learn is they can, they can have their cake and eat it too. So the biggest case for doing it is a case that you'll produce the results and everybody wins. The people that resist it are the ones that think like, no, 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 no. The only way we get results is if we do it my way. And, you know, we don't treat everybody like, look, you should be blessed that you have a job, right? That's, that's where we should start. No, that's not where you should start. When you do the opposite, really good things happen that benefit everybody. It's hmm. a great way to look at it. Um, so in terms of trusting and letting go of control, what do you say to someone who's either in your audience or comes to you for leadership development coaching and hmm. they know that they hoard work, they know that they stink at delegating, they know that they need to let go. Obviously fear is a, a big emotion there, right? Like how do you work with someone who wants to trust and wants to let go, but has that, oh my God, I have to do it myself, I have to do it my way, or it's not gonna go right. And they sabotage. Three words, three words, Brendan. You ready for this one? Yes. Agreement for autonomy. It's an actual tool that I use with people that are exactly the way you describe it. And it's a, it's a document that you can put together. It's called an agreement for autonomy. And you know, what I teach a lot uh, and I speak a lot on is the art of intelligent autonomy that believe it or not, even when we want to grant autonomy, there's a dark side to it, dude, we can really screw this up. You know, if you think about it, I don't know if you've ever had a boss and I'll come back and explain the document in a minute, but if you ever had a boss where well, this has happened to you, this used to happen to me all the time. Oh yeah. Hey Scott, this one's yours, man. You got it. You know, take it, run with it. I'm going to empower you. Right. Then at the first sign of trouble, what happens? Boom. He or she's right back in through the side door trying to take control back or the, or you get delegated something and empowered something that is um, frankly small and belittling. I once uh, was going to present uh, to the board of directors at Procter and Gamble and I had a boss who told me, Hey, listen, I've actually decided I'm going to present your work, but you can pick where everybody sits in the room like you decide like what the power seats are i'm like that's how you're empowering me right you can that, get that's people you're coffee <laughs> yeah yeah, like, yeah. So we could screw it up so for people that are nervous about it which usually at the core of that is is it's usually um, something deep within them that, that boils back to insecurity they're afraid that if they give power up that it's going to reflect badly on them that they're not quite as needed that the that the other people will outshine them um, or they're just control freaks and they're insecure and they want control over every aspect of their life. So the agreement for autonomy really helps Brendan because you sit down with a person that you're nervous to empower and you agree to some basic things. What's the scope of the work? What are the rules and the presumptions here? What can you guys go make decisions on what you can't? What does good look like? What are the measurements behind that work? How am I going to reward you for taking on the new responsibility that you have? What are the resources you're going to have? If you run into trouble, what is my role in that? When do I actually need you as a leader to update me? A lot of times when we empower people, you get the, um, what si social scientists call the sandbox paradox, where people will say, oh, thanks for the autonomy. Love it. They go off and do their thing. You don't hear from them for three months. Then when the boss shows up for an update, they're like, no, 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 I got it. Stay out of my sandbox. You don't want that to happen either. So as a leader, you have to make it clear, look, Help me help you, like Jerry Maguire said, right? Help me help you update me so that I can reward you for your autonomy and I can do what I need to do with my chain of command. So you get the idea by um, detailing out things like, like the scope and the goals and the objectives and the parameters, putting them to paper, it makes it much clearer. The truth is, Brett, it takes work to give away work and people don't want to hear that. They want to just think like, you know, it turns into dumping instead of effective delegating. 
you got to put a little work into it and anybody can empower um, uh, and make it, make it effective. Yeah, that's great. Uh, next question I had was in the context of being friendly versus friends with people who work for you. What's the difference between someone who wants to be nice and be on good terms with someone, but then too nice where that person doesn't take their boss seriously? What do you recommend someone who has people working underneath them do where they can be in a good place, but also not like sort of going down to the level where they don't take you seriously and they don't listen to you and you get command respect? Great, great question, Brendan. It all comes down to when you cross the threshold, it's, a, it's one word. It's when you lose objectivity. That's when things get really tough. And I'm, you know, I'm a very um, friendly, outgoing guy. I love to make um, you know really great close contact with all my employees. And uh, I had to work on that. I had to work on not crossing the line into they're now becoming friends. And when I when I know that that was happening, is when I was losing objectivity and forgetting my job is to evaluate them objectively on their performance to give them harsh feedback in a loving way when I need to do that, to separate church from state and know when it's time to, okay, guys, we got to buck up now and I'm, I am your boss. This is the way things need to happen. You just, you can be very friendly with your people. And in fact, I would argue if you're not, you're going to have a hard time building the kind of culture you want. It's about knowing where the line is, where you cross the point of objectivity. It's not that uncommon to being a parent. You know, I have a 16-year-old daughter, and to this day, I still have to realize and give myself a speech, you're not a friend. You're losing your objectivity here, dude. You need to lay down a hammer so that she doesn't do this or does this. Don't lose that ob- objectivity. And if you can do that and keep it in sight, you can, you can walk the line, I think, pretty effectively. That's great. And how do you lay down the hammer on someone who is more sensitive? And yeah. how do you manage that where you need to give them feedback and lay down the hammer but noting that their reaction could be potentially destructive to the working relationship. Ah, great question. It's very simple. You always talk to them. It's never about you. It's about your behavior or the result in this particular instance where things go south is when people take it as a personal attack. Right. And um, if you've ever, some of the most heated arguments you'll ever see is where one person is attacking another's character. You never want to do that as a boss. There's, you know, there's not, there's ways that you can lay down a hammer by going back to, this is the objective. This is where you fell relative to the objective, that word objectivity again, right? Notice there's no judgment in my voice. I'm not talking about your personality traits, how you are as a person, what you're going to become in your life. What I'm talking about is at this point in time, right now, we agreed to this. Objectively, the performance is here. It has to be better. Here's how we're going to get there. That also sounds like a supportive statement, like you're going to work with them to help them get to that level. Yeah, and a lot of times people just want to know that, Brendan, don't they? I mean, you're a life coach, you know this. A lot of times people just need to know that you're in their corner. So even when you have to be um, firm with them, they know it comes from a place of love and from you wanting to help them succeed. And you can tell when someone doesn't want you to succeed and they're just lashing out at you. You can spot that a mile away. It's hard to not... To, to try to you know to hide that so yeah that's right no, that's great and, and, and it's so spot on because people they protect their identity and their character probably more than anything else so if they feel like they're personally being attacked not the work product was bad but i'm bad yes that's when the big defensiveness comes out 
That's right. I tell the people the, it's right, Brendan. Brendan, it's the same thing uh, with helping people overcome failure, right? They, they let the failure become a definition of who they are and a harbinger of future evil things to come. You know, that failure is me. And of course, failure is never the person. It's never a person. It's an event. It's a point in time. And you just have to remove yourself from that. So it's very similar in that regards as well. Mm, yeah, it's good. Uh, my next question is kind of the opposite, which is how do you manage up? What advice do you have for people who have a difficult boss or someone above them who is not empathetic? I mean, my background is investment banking and hedge funds in New York City, where people are throwing books at each other, telling you you're the worst ever. So obviously, those are extreme examples. But I would say most listeners, if they have a boss who's maybe good in some ways, but can be really annoying in other ways, what do you tell people who have a hard time going in the other direction? Edging up, yeah. Well, I, um, allow me to tell you a little bit about um, a theory that uh, oriented um, uh, in European uh, universities called the bubble and burst theory. And I practice it and I've researched it and I found it to be effective and accurate. And here's what it is. It's very simple. It's bubble and burst. First of all, when you have a boss who just doesn't get it up the food chain, right? There's a, there's a couple of things here. You have to protect your culture and the people that work for you. If that person is acidic, if they don't get it, if they're hard, if they have zero empathy, you can't not have that have an impact on the culture. It's going to. All you can do is create a bubble. Your world, where on your island, you're going to run things differently. And you're going to protect people as much as you can from the corrosiveness of that boss. It is your job to be able to do that. Now, listeners might be saying, yeah, but okay, dude, but that's inconsistent. You're creating a temporary world that doesn't address the reality above. That's where the burst part comes in. And here's what the, uh, this is uh, based on psychology theory, which says that most people that are acidic and corrosive don't realize the full extent of their impact on the people that work for them. And if you were to sit down and be able to show them, and uh, I've done this, tapes of here's the reactions that people were having to this instance where you blew up at them. So this instance where you belittled them, most of them really, really in their heart of hearts would be shocked. They think it's the way things are done. They may have had a boss that got it done that way and they're role modeling that person. There's something in their life that has them. For the most part, they don't understand. Now, there are some people that are truly evil at heart and they take pleasure in the pain, but that's the minority, okay? That's the minority. For most, they don't realize that. The burst part requires bravery because you as a leader, while you're building the bubble, you have to go up and burst the bubble of the person above you. You have to sit down and have a, a discussion with them that's never about them as a human being. It's about the impact their behaviors are having on the organization beneath them. It's up to you to burst that bubble and help them understand. You think you're creating this impact. Here's the real impact that you're creating, and this is the effect it's having on the organization. If you remove it from, I'm here to tell you how to do your job. You never want to do that and you make it about the impact they're having on the environment and the culture, who's not going to listen to that? That doesn't mean that they might not get defensive. The way they process it will be different. But most people, most leaders will tell you, and I've proven this in research, that actually just over 80% of leaders would welcome it if people were more honest with them when they were having a corrosive impact. But we, won't, we don't do that because that's hard, dude. Like, I teach this? And it's hard. It was hard for me to do that in corporate life. Like it's, it's a scary thought to go up to a high up with a discussion like that. 
but you have to do it to be able to produce the kind of culture and results that you want over the long haul. So much reminds me of when I worked for this hedge fund in New York City and had the greatest founder, such a good guy with the good heart, like you said, not the evil type at all. However, very cynical, very negative, very harsh, very reluctant to give any type of affirmation of, oh, you did a good job. You know, it's like, I remember the day I got my bonus, he calls me into a room, it's like January something a few years ago, and he slides a check over to me in an envelope and I'm holding this check and he starts, he just starts the meeting going, look, you know, I'm a negative guy. So I'm going to give you feedback for the year and it's going to basically all be negative and bad. And I'm, and I'm pissed <laughs> off and I'm like, this guy, are you kidding me? I quit. And as he's doing that, I pull open the check and I start to see more and more zeros and I'm like, okay, <laughs> six figures. but you're right. When I think about that, I may have had some conversations when we were out for beers saying like, look, where does, I remember asking, where does this negativity come from? He told me about his parents and coming from in an international country and them being super harsh, but for sure I could have done more to communicate the impact that that was having on everyone because yeah. people would come to me and we would talk about the culture and it was hurting us all. And there was a lot of fear in that. If I go and I tell him this, is he going to get defensive? Is he going to fire me? You know, it's, it's like you said, it's tough, but also necessary. Yeah, and I'll bet. Yeah, um, I'm going to bet, Brendan, you distinctly, you could probably remember, I don't know, like what the dude was wearing the day that you had this discussion. You could probably remember the room you were in. I this is like an emotional moment for us, isn't it? Absolutely. I remember we were, it was like a high top bar right in Midtown East, and we were having beers. He's telling me about his parents and the sacrifices that they made and their psychology and for sure there was more I could have done there. And this is a great opportunity to learn that and uh, understand that. Great. So um, we're talking about this in the context of managing up. Uh, the next question I had is we have a lot of people who are entrepreneurs here, but also if you're a manager in, in corporate America, I want to talk about team and when it's right to let someone go and how to manage that process of, are you mismanaging them? Is there opportunity to change or is it the wrong person? How do you know? Yeah, it's a great question. And I live by one rule because I mean, you know, the, without question, the worst days as an entrepreneur or as a leader in the corporate world are the days when you have to let somebody go. And if you enjoy that, then, then, you know, you need to, you need to go on a, a, a podcast that's for psychological help because <laughs> nobody enjoys that. Right. But it yeah. is a fact of life for leaders. It's what we got to do. Yeah. And there's a lot of ways to, to look at it, but I, I find kind of one simple acid test. You're thinking about it's time to let someone go. If they came in and told you, Hey, it's time for me to go. I want to quit. I want to move on to another job. What would your emotional reaction be instantly? Would it be, I got to convince him or her it's time to stay. Or would you breathe a small sigh of relief to yourself? Oh, that's one thing I don't have to address. That simple question is the defining point of whether or not, in my opinion, someone belongs in your organization. Because what happens is you're forced in that moment. Reality has happened. It's been handed to me. You can't not react emotionally one way or another. And what do we do? We bury those emotions when it comes to evaluating people because we all want to see the best in them, right? And I had to work hard at this, Brendan. We all want to see the best in people. The best thing that you can do, the second thing is remember, it is a gift. If they don't belong, the odds are they're not, he, they're not evil humans. 
and they might not be a good fit. Uh, maybe they don't have the microprocessor. Maybe they don't have the skill set. Maybe they're just not a fit. But if you're the one that can release them from being in a place they don't belong, the service that you're giving them is tremendous. Some of the most powerful feedback, Brendan, and I, I mean this, I talk to thousands of people at a time sometimes when I'm on stage. And literally millions of people read my articles every year on it, can read my books, blah, 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 blah. No feedback I get is more powerful and more rewarding to me than people who said, hey, thank you so much for telling me it was time for a different chapter in my life. And I keep in touch with one person uh, 10 years ago. I had to have the tough discussion that you're just not a fit. You're not going to make it. Here's why. Oh, by the way, that dude is a vice president now at a company in a, uh, that has a lifestyle that he's passionate about. And he's thriving in a culture that's very different from the one that we were in. So not easy to do, but those two simple questions, I think, uh, can make all the difference in helping you discern. I think it's the same in relationships, too. Yeah. So if you're not sure if this is the right person and you imagine them leaving, <laughs> would you have wanted them to stay or was it a relief? And are they, if they leave, are they serving you to create space for the right fit in terms of a partner? Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. You got it, Brendan. That's interesting. Cool. So I want to ask you about this transition that you've made personally from working at P&G in the corporate world to entrepreneurial speaking, writing, et cetera. Yeah. A lot of people out there are debating this in their own life. Should yeah. I stay in corporate world? Should I leave? Grass is always greener, right? <laughs> I could travel. I could be my own boss. Oh, but the steady paycheck, the health benefits, et cetera. How do you answer the question when someone says, should I go out and do my own thing or should I stay in my day job? Yes. Uh, great question. Here's, um, here's what I always, uh, and I, I coach people actually on this about the, you know, jettisoning corporate life and when's it right, when's it not right. So a couple of things on this one, Brendan, um, you know, first and foremost, you got to start by being honest with yourself on, you know, what really makes you happy. And if you're miserable in the corporate world um, and it's time to get out and you have a dream and you have a place to go, you're not running from something. You're running to something. That's the first kind of gate you got to clear. It can't just be, I hate my job. I just want to get out and start speaking. Um, that'll be a better way because it doesn't work that way. You have to be drawn and compelled to something. For me, it was a, you know, a calling that I feel to help people become better versions of themselves, to teach about what it means uh, to be a leader that brings meaning into people's lives. Once you kind of have said, okay, I'm doing this for the right reasons because I feel called to go do this work. It's important to me. I, I can't not go speak and write because of the following reasons. Then I think realistically, you have to, you have to do two things. You have to set a financial target for yourself on how much do I need to make to maintain the lifestyle that I want, on the assumption that maybe you're willing to trade your lifestyle down just a little bit. And most people don't like to hear that, Brendan. And I won't take on clients that say, all right, I'm, I'm making this up, Brendan. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm making almost a cool million in corporate. I want to double that, you know, and I'm not, I don't want to give up anything in my lifestyle because I want to go speak and I want to go write and I won't take those people on. Yeah. What I will take on are the people that are like, this is what makes me happy. I want a lifestyle that where I can be my own boss. I want to, uh, whatever. I want to teach yoga and teach mental health to people, you know, whatever. And my income target is this. And 
that's important because it says to me like, okay, they've understood this was, isn't going to be easy. They know how much money they have to reorient their life. And then you can start with a little bit less pressure on yourself of the amount of money you need to maintain your lifestyle. You start from a place of, you might be willing to make some sacrifices because it, it might be hard in the beginning. Not to say, by the way, that you can't ultimately be so successful. You can go back to your old lifestyle, but it's very dangerous when people just start with the assumption they can maintain or increase when they want to become an entrepreneur. I, I find that very dangerous. Hmm. So if that's true, then it becomes a matter of being very clear on where your streams of revenue are going to come from and how you're going to produce those streams of revenue and, and nurture them over time. For me, I have 11 different streams of revenue. I try not to be a one-trick pony. Yeah. Um, and I, I prioritize them based on what I do love doing most because I set a, a revenue goal that's uh, reasonable uh, in, in my point of view. So I start with, you know, I, I love speaking from stage. My business model is beat, built around speaking from stage. I love writing second and so, and so on and so on and so on and so on. Now to do all of that, I never suggest, you know, I think people who just say, you know, quit your job and follow your passion. That is horrible advice. I always recommend um, the side hustle is as difficult as that is because it gives people a chance to really put through the filter. Is this what I really want to do? Is my business model economically viable? Are there enough clients out there that want what I want? And is my game good enough that I can survive and make it doing this? And I, I spoke within P and G, um, you know, over, Oh gosh, at one point I was speaking as many as 30 times a year around the world for Procter and Gamble as part of, you know, that wasn't even my day job. I was just doing it as a volunteer, getting my shtick down, making sure I was good, building my client base. Uh, you know, my first year out as an entrepreneur, 50% of my business to 60, yeah, probably closer to two thirds, honestly, was all people that I built in my network from having spoke at Procter and Gamble for years. So a, a real well thought transition plan instead of a jump off of a cliff. Is that, I threw a lot at you. Does that all make sense? Makes a lot of sense to me and very much reminiscent of my experience of making this transition because like you said, I identified a certain lifestyle and way I wanted to live. And I was absolutely willing to take a pay cut to do that because I decided I would, to me, if I had to choose between this income bracket and happiness and fulfillment, obviously I would prefer the latter. Now, the cool thing is, as I'm sure you've noticed um, with your transition or will come through with your transition with mine, is you start to make more, but not because of the goal was to make more, but because yes. you're doing what you were put on this planet to do and you're adding so value and you're monetizing, right? And then you get both, best of both worlds, but not because that was the goal. That's output as a result of having the right motivation and game plan. Brendan, that is a thousand percent correct. And that, that a lot of students don't realize that, that... It, it, it's so clarifying that if you're mentally willing to trade your lifestyle down, it takes a lot of pressure off in the beginning. And it's so true. Most clients, unless if you've truly picked a, a business model that's not going to work or an area that, you know, uh, you know, being a, a VCR salesman, you know, uh, having a VCR business online, I don't recommend it. I don't think it's going to go anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> You got to pick something that's going to work, but you're, you're hundred percent right because you can't hide that you love what you do, especially when it's speaking. And then you soon find um, 80% of your business comes from referrals from people that see you speak. They see you lighting up the stage because you're doing what you love. Yeah. Next thing you know, you're, you've blown away your, your, your lifestyle goal. 
And that's exactly what happens. So yeah, 100% agree. Brother. I love it. Okay, well, the last section that I want to focus on and close with is we've talked a lot about leadership, managing in both directions, transition from corporate to doing what you love. The last thing, I, which I know you speak and write a lot about, is how to be the best version of you yeah. and how to be a peak performer in the sense of tapping into and utilizing what's available because most of us don't take advantage of what we're totally capable of. So yes. in those areas, what are the key things that you say that people can do to become better versions of themselves? A couple of things. Number one, uh, this is so important, uh, so important. You know, do you know anybody, Brendan, that doesn't want to become a better version of themselves? Do you know anybody that, sings, that wakes up and says, I can't wait to suck today. I can't wait to be worse than I was yesterday. <laughs> we all want that. Yeah. But things get in our way. And one of the biggest things that gets in the way are people that lose sight that the only comparison that matters in life is to who you were yesterday and whether or not you're becoming a better version of yourselves. And I used to coach so many people that were hung up in, and I still coach entrepreneurs now that are comparing to, yeah, but I saw this guy do an online course and he's advertising how he's making $100,000 a month. And by the way, the people that do that are the ones that sell how to make money online, by the way. But, you know, yeah. and I'm comparing myself to, uh, and, 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 or I'm comparing myself to a peer at work. And, and you know, in this, uh, this world, uh, I, I did some research on this uh, for my courses at Indiana University. And we're finding, this won't surprise you, Brendan, that as we get in an ever more social world, we get caught up comparing our blooper reels to everybody else's highlight reels in the Instagram, Facebook, picture perfect world where people aren't even presenting the real selves. They're just presenting their highlight reels. And we, this, uh, this constant comparison is eroding our self-confidence and self-esteem. You can't become the better version of yourself if you're worried about how you compare to everybody else. Number one, yeah. number two, it's so important to focus on authenticity instead of approval. And especially in the corporate world and for certainly with entrepreneurs that feel like they always have to satisfy investors, uh, their clients, you know, of course you have to do that. Yeah, duh. But it's about you being your authentic self. And I've seen people go south where they start changing who they are, how they show up, and they become miserable. And a lot of people that I coach out of corporate, you know, they, they talk to me about like, I haven't been me in years. That beautiful version that I had buried inside of me hasn't come out in a long time. My unique creative gifts are getting buried. And when you start to worry about getting approval from others and showing up that way, you can't, almost by definition, you can't become the best version of yourself. What are you becoming? You're becoming the version based on someone else's definition of success. So you have to set that aside. And then the third thing I always tell people is to become the best version of yourself, you just have to have a constant almost discomfort with the status quo of you as a person, the constant love of learning and growth for the sake of learning and growth, you know, with a point to it to help you become and, and contribute to your mission, but also just for the love, the pure love of learning. And I talked to so many people that become stuck in their life because they they found that I don't have time to go to that conference. I don't have time to take to go to Tony Robbins sessions. I don't have time for that. I got, you know, three days of work of blah, 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 blah. And then when you talk to the people that don't think about it that way, they find that they don't have time to not go take learning and growth opportunities for themselves because they're going to wither. Unstuck starts with you, mm -hmm. literally, 
and figuratively, you have to pull yourself, uh, pull yourself out if you want to be the best version of yourself, right? Does that make all those things make sense, Brendan? You have given our listeners so much value. I might have to charge money for them to listen to this one. <laughs> Scott, you are just crushing it. I, I cannot believe how much value you've given. And, you know, the one, one of those three that really stood out to me in my journey was the authenticity versus approval. Oh. I've had clients in the coaching realm that will pay me huge sums of money and they want certain things done, but they're really hiring me because they need something else. Yes. And so how can you hit certain benchmarks to make them feel safe, but also call them out and say, look, you gotta, gotta do this. This is what really matters. And in the past I've, uh, I've gotten approval and I've pleased and because I thought, Oh, this will make them stay with me. But then two months later they meet someone who pushes them out of their comfort zone and then go with that person. That's so true. That's, that, that's so true. And yeah. you know, it's um, all of that can sound easier said than done. Um, but you know, but at the end of the end of the day, it's something you, you have to do if you want to improve as a human, as a worker, as a leader, you, you have to do those things. Yeah. I c couldn't agree more. So uh, thank you again so much for all this value. How can people find you on the web and get more info from you and learn more about who you are? Oh, right on. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, they can find me at, uh, scottmoutz.com, S-C-O-T-T-M-A-U-T-Z.com. Uh, if they go there, you learn about um, all the things that I speak on that I write on. And I made sure to put together a little bonus for your listeners. Um, if they want to check out my latest book, Find the Fire, uh, if they go there, they'll be able to download a, a, um, a kind of a, a free workbook that goes along with that that I, uh, I put up there for your listeners. So I'll only have it up there for, uh, I was going to leave it up for about another 30 days. But, uh, but if anybody wants to do that, go to scottmounts.com and check out uh, Find the Fire. Um, you can get a free workbook that, that goes with it. Uh, some of what I've talked about today comes from that book. So thanks for the opportunity to mention that. Oh, my pleasure. And guys, we'll put this all in the show notes for you guys. But again, it's Scott Mautz, M-A-U-T-Z.com. Find your fire. Scott, thank you again so much for coming on the show. The last thing I'll close with is just letting you know, I have one sibling. And when he was born, my parents could not figure out a name for him. And I was, I was four. And get and I got I threw something out there and it stuck and that became his name and that was Scott. All right, I, I thought you were going to say like and it was Beyonce or so I don't know. So, <laughs> and it was I, I, like, <laughs> I like the ending of Scott. Love it, brother. So see, we're brothers from another mother. Got it. <laughs> exactly. Well, Scott, thanks again so much for coming on the show. You gave us so much value. I'm going to go listen to this one again. Thank you again, man. Right on, Brendan. And thanks for what you do. I hope your listeners understand that it's an investment in your time and what you do is a service that we need. So thank you. Absolutely. I really appreciate that. All right. Be good, man. Yep, you too.